I have a lot of questions myself about about mental health. You should, <laughs> you, should you should send them. You should send them in and see if we can answer them. Anonymous. No, I won't. I, I won't stuff. I won't stuff the ballot box. Let's 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 let the let's <laughs> let the folks who are listening do your thing and send us some questions. Welcome back to Shrinking It Down, Mental Health Made Simple. I'm Gene Bresson. And I'm Khadija Booth-Watkins. And we're two child and adolescent psychiatrists at the Clay Center for Young Healthy Minds at the Massachusetts General Hospital. And uh, this is our first episode, I think, uh, of our of a podcast for this year, isn't it? This is our first episode for 2023. And we're going to begin in kind of an open-ended fashion because... Um, you know, your questions are super important to us. And even though we uh, believe that we're experts, I guess we are experts um, in child and adolescent psychiatry, you know, you're experts with your kids and you have questions based on real life experience that are so important. So we're going to start this year with answering some questions that you've sent us. How does that sound, Khadija? Sounds like a great idea. And I tell parents all the time, like, I'm an expert in my own right, but you are the expert on your child. Exactly. So um, maybe I'll, I'll read the first question and then you could, you know, chime in. Okay. It's um, how to help with hair pulling. Um, I guess it's as simple as that. There wasn't a follow-up. So hair <laughs> How do we help with hair pulling? Well, hair, first of all, I'll I'll open it up. Hair pulling is called trichotillomania, which is a variant uh, and related to obsessive compulsive disorder. Uh, and it's defined as twisting, pulling, and sometimes even pulling out your hair. Uh, and it's it is a bona fide compulsion that a a child just can't stop doing. So, Khadija, what do we do for that? Well, we can think of just some practical ways just to address the the act of hair pulling. And so some things that I sometimes recommend are, you know, if they're pulling hair off the top of their head, recommend wearing a bandana or some, some sort of hair covering to make it more difficult. Sometimes kids can get really, you know, really, um, they can get bald spots, which make it hard for them to feel good about themselves and confident. <clears throat> Other things that I might recommend would be maybe wearing gloves, um, sometimes even something as, as silly as maybe putting a little bit of uh, Vaseline on the tips of your fingers because it makes it hard to, to, to grasp the hair and pull it. Um, but the one thing that I do also recommend while we're doing these acts is to think about when do you hair pull? Do you pull your hair when you're bored? Do you pull your hair when you're trying to go to sleep at night? Um, do you pull your hair when you're stressed? Or is it hard for you to, to know? But this might be a cue or a clue to help us to think about how we might kind of give you other interventions to address it. What else should we think about? Well, what I'd like to know also uh, from the standpoint of the child is whether it's uh, felt to be a negative experience uh, or whether it gives them some degree of uh, pleasure. Uh, you know, a lot of uh, obsessive compulsive behavior is meant to fend something off. In other words, you have a compulsion to, you know, touch the door three times or say three prayers or, you know, um, 
check to see that the stove is off and then you check again and check again and check again. And a lot of compulsive behavior is meant to kind of the water of something bad happening or make yourself feel better in a weird way, even though you can't stop. Uh, and in that light, if we think of it as a variant of obsessive compulsive disorder, uh, the two mainstay treatments uh that we provide is first cognitive behavior therapy which um uh helps teach the, the child what to do about uh, thoughts because uh, usually it begins with the thought of pulling the hair so you have a trigger and that's the impulse you have the thought and that's of, of twisting or pulling out the hair then you have an emotional reaction which is i just which is anxiety. I've just got to do this. It won't be relieved until it's done. And then the behavior, which is the hair pulling. So working on exaggerated or distorted thoughts or cognitions is what we do for cognitive behavior therapy. And the other part of it is um, using medications because the uh, selective serotonin uh, reuptake inhibitors, the SSRIs, have been extremely effective in uh, treating OCD, even up to 85% effective. Uh, and especially when combined with C with cognitive behavior therapy, with CBT. So those would be the traditional methods that we would provide uh, as, as, as doctors. I think those are really great. And I think that brings us back to why the why is so important, because I think it helps us to tailor the intervention specific to the kids. Because I could tell you, you know, to sit on your hands or to, you know, you know, keep a fidget. But if hair pulling relieves distress, I'm going to also probably create some distress. So really understanding why you're doing what you're doing is going to be so important to help really tailor the intervention to really, you know, get the symptoms to go away or mm -hmm. get the compulsion to go away. Great. Uh, so let's let's tackle the second question. The second one is how to help my teen son with avoidance behaviors at school and at home. Avoidance is a is a symptom, I guess, of so many different things, and I and it goes back to what's the function of the behavior is what I what I like to think about and discuss with with parents and kids because if we can understand the function of the behavior, we can begin to do things to kind of undo it. And most of the time we avoid things if it gives us distress or makes us uncomfortable. If I'm afraid of heights, I'm going to avoid, you know, going into elevators or going over bridges. So really understanding the function of the behavior or or why we're doing what we're doing helps us to think about how we would begin to build an intervention to help um, address it because we got to go to school, you know, you know, you got to come home. And so these are things that we kind of have to do. So how do we help them do it in a way that is less distressful? Yeah. And to add to that, we want to know what they're avoiding. I mean, so are they avoiding? So all of this is involved in having conversations, which we promote and which are super important. And I'd like to know what is, what is the child? What is this, what is this, this little guy or teenager avoiding? Is he avoiding social situations? Is he avoiding homework? Is he avoiding going to school? Is he avoiding um, uh, public speaking in class? Uh, is he avoiding uh, playing sports? Uh, and because once we know what 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 the avoidance is, we can add 
to what you're just saying, and we can begin to think about how do we address that problem. Most of the time, it's going to be some form of exposure response prevention. So we're going to try to gradually expose them to what they're avoiding to hopefully let them see that, you know, it's not so bad. We we survived this, you know, for 10 minutes. Let's do it again for 30 minutes. But hopefully, you know, over the course of time, as we gradually expose them to what they're avoiding, they become desensitized to it or they become kind of, if you will, immune to what they were originally afraid of. And then it becomes easier for them to do. But it's so important to know if we're if we're exposing them to if they're struggling with the schoolwork, we need to get them help with whatever accommodations or remediation they might need. If they're being bullied at school, we need to address that. There's the safety concern. So we do have to have these conversations with them and make it a platform that feels open and safe for them to share exactly what they're feeling and exactly what's going on with them when they go to school or when they're going home that makes it so difficult. And, and when you said exposure response prevention, that means uh, exposing them. Uh, it's a form of CBT. So we like to expose them in baby steps. So if you're afraid of heights, you don't go to the top of the Boston, the Hancock Tower for New York, the top of the Empire State Building and look over the edge. That's known as flooding. And it's it's actually more traumatic than doing it step by step. You know, we used to call it systematic desensitization, which means you systematically desensitize the child to whatever they're uh, afraid of. Uh, and uh, usually avoidance is a fear response. It's part of the fight or flight response. So instead of fighting, they they flee, they avoid it. And um, a small step-by-step approach uh, is what we typically use for, uh, for phobias, or um, things that that we're, we're afraid of. The other the other thing I, I want to mention about this is is that um, I would try to understand empathically the child's feelings and point of view. I mean, if they're avoiding schoolwork because they they have a learning disability, or if they're avoiding social situations because they're afraid of of saying something wrong or they're afraid of bullies, you know, um, what, one of the things we don't want to do is say, well, just, just do it. You know, Just suck it, it up, buttercup. We don't want to say that. No, no. And, and, and understand, you know, why it's so difficult. Because once you have an understanding of the child and the child feels that, that he's being seen, heard, validated, um, that you get it, and he's got that support. I mean, it's very, very hard to face a fear, even if that fear is irrational. Now, bullying is not irrational. Bullying is it's an aggressive thing. But but let's say he's afraid of kind of like giving a book report in class, and you might think, ugh, how how ridiculous. Well, back in my know, day, this was never an issue. Just do it. Right. 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 You just did it and that's it. You got it over with. You sucked it up. And okay. so, but, and it may, it may end up being that way to an extent, step by step, but it's so much easier for the child to engage in that stepwise progression if he feels that you get it and that you're supportive and that you will understand that you're not criticizing him for uh, a deficit. Uh, we all have our weaknesses and we all have our strengths. 
And um, I think everybody listening probably can think of of something that they've been afraid of that they've avoided. Like my emails after <laughs> vacation. <laughs> I mean, the, the other thing I will add is that it is so important to address it sooner rather than later and begin having these conversations because the longer we engage in some sort of avoided behavior, the harder it is to re-engage in it. So the longer they might, um, you know, resist participating in class or going to school or doing things that they're supposed to do around the house, the harder it is for them to to go back to it. And so, again, having these conversations as soon as it appears to be a potentially a problem and, and thinking about ways that you can help gently and and warmly push them to to their goals. Yes. We don't want we don't want to make the molehill into the mountain, right? So that's it's a good point. Okay, so we have a third one. Uh, my child recently started touching the edges of furniture, picture frames, objects around the house whenever they uh, get to, uh, whenever they get up to walk somewhere. They don't seem to be aware that they're doing it, and they can't seem to stop when I ask them to. This one is a little bit trickier. Because it could be like you talked about earlier about what what is the sensation or feeling that they're getting? Are they getting some sort of relief or is it just like an automatic um, act, almost like a tick, like an urge? It does sound it does sound very much like compulsive behavior mm-hmm. and, and, and very much like what we talked about with hair pulling, uh, except this compulsion is one of touching Uh and you and you uh, might find after you have conversations that there is some sense of relief and they may be a little bit more aware of what they're doing. Uh, it may not be as straightforward as it seems to appear uh, right off the bat. What's interesting about this is that they don't seem to be aware that they're doing it. Usually with a compulsion, um, they're, folks, you know, kids as well as adults are very aware of what they're doing. They just can't stop it. In other words, they they have to you know they have to open and close the, the lock on the door three times, uh, and they're aware that they're doing it, but they just can't stop themselves. So, what's interesting about this is that they don't is is the lack of awareness, which you enables they're you, not aware. Well, that's right. The parent. So that's where conversation comes in. You know, asking them, "Are you aware of of?" of what you're doing when you, you know, when you're walking around the house. And then the other question I want to know is, do they, do they only do it at home or do they do it everywhere? Um, if they do it at home, I mean, there's meaning. Behavior has meaning. Even, even if we just don't get it at first, if they're just doing it at home and not in restaurants or in supermarkets or in school or in their Sunday school, wherever, um, then what is it about home that makes them have that urge? You know, so that's kind of, you know, parents, I think, need to be kind of like, you know, uh, detectives <laughs> in, in a gentle, warm way, understanding. We have to be mindful of our body language and our tone when we ask questions, the words that we choose when we ask questions like why is really a tough one because it doesn't usually, it usually always comes across typically judgmental and and often if I knew why I wouldn't do it. And so 
asking why is probably not the best way, but like, what are you seeing? What, what's, what, what's going on in your head when, when this happens? Are you having a certain feeling? Like asking more questions more specifically and directly can be more helpful. But as long as we're coming to this again with warmth and kindness and compassion, um, you know, we're going to be successful. We just have to be patient and then ask questions and have multiple conversations because they might be a little bit embarrassed and ashamed at first. And they might initially say, what are you talking about? I'm not touching the the corners. That was just one time. But, you know, going back to them and asking, expressing that you might be, con- that you're concerned, like all of these things can help open up the, the floor for them to feel more comfortable and supported. And, and I think, I think to understand that, um, uh, as, as Stuart Avalon, I think kids, you know, always says about kids who are challenging, is that it's not a, a lack, it's not willfulness, it's a lack of skill. You know, they are not willfully touching these things because it's it's fun. They just don't have the skills, or the or the understanding, uh, or the mechanism, or the means to stop it. Um, so, taking an approach to to understand them and decide with them and to support them and you know, to manage it together. The good news is that uh, the behavior is an obsessive compulsive disorder, which is what I assume this is 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 a is is a, a variant of, um, are incredibly um, rewarding for us to and for parents to treat because these kids most most kids get better much better okay <clears throat> so we have another question how do we better support our five-year-old who was fully potty trained pre-pandemic was out of daycare for 10 plus months and has since struggled to keep her underwear dry especially when watching tv pediatrician has already checked for medical causes and she does not wet the bed this is a consistent after school with parents, primarily a home thing, purely based on FOMO or fear of missing out. She screams at us when we prompt her and she's been uh, has begun to lie and attempt to hide the behavior. But unfortunately, mom's nose knows and can smell it. Consequences have resulted in repeated loss of screen privileges and leaving the end of play dates early when movies or TV shows are involved, have also asked her to rinse her own wet clothes. Please help. I uh, mean, there, there, there's a, there are a lot of layers here that I think we probably will have to unpack and talk through um, step by step. Um, and, and I can imagine uh, it sounds like the mom mom is kind of at a loss, obviously, for what to do, which is hopefully we can be helpful around beginning to think through this with her. I think the most important thing is to make sure that there's not a medical cause, which it sounds like she did. Um, what are your thoughts? Well, I have a lot of thoughts. Um, first of all, uh, I think if I were to approach this clinically, I would want to know, has anything has anything changed at home? You know, um, things like this don't necessarily come out of the blue. Uh, has there been a change in jobs, in the parental relationships with siblings? Have there been other uh, uh, adverse events? For example, has anyone gotten very sick from COVID? Has anyone died? 
They've been losses. So I think we start by asking some general questions about what home life has been like. What's fascinating to me about it is that it doesn't happen in school. It doesn't seem to happen. It, do, it doesn't happen at night. <laughs> so uh, something's happening, particularly around the screen. So Khadija, what would you ask about about the screen? About what or, or any other questions? What, what would you ask about? So I would go, I would start to think about like, what is the function of this behavior? What is this doing for her? Obviously, you know, this is not something she's doing in a way something because she wants to. I think we we want to be clear about how we approach it and, and really manage, um, be mindful of what we're, the thoughts that we're thinking. So we don't want to think about this as something that's willful. We want to think about what, how this behavior is serving her. And so mom mentioned that there, she maybe is, there's fear of missing out. Um, what is she maybe so captivated by on these screens? Um, how can we maybe think about breaking it up a little bit more so that there are more natural breaks um, is my first thought. Um, yeah, and, and I want to take off on what you said about it's not willful. I mean, this reminds me uh, of some basic principles of collaborative problem solving. And that is, is that her behavior, all kids want approval. And so does she. And um, uh, uh as 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 we know from from Stuart Avalon and think kids, it's not a matter of willfulness. It's a matter of lack of skills. Uh, but one of the things that also happens with collaborative problem solving is that um, you get further with kids, I think, rather than uh, using punishments to change behavior such as taking things away like the screen time like um uh taking her away from play dates early so that she won't watch tv uh like making her rinse or wash her own clothes uh those punishment measures typically don't work as well as using positive reinforcement so for example how can we make this into a win-win how can we say, how can we talk with this five-year-old and say, uh, look, I don't want you to poop in your pants. I don't want you to miss TV. If you've got to go, can you raise your hand or can you come over to, can you hit a bell? Can you tell me you'd like something to be stopped? And then we'll just pause the TV and you can continue with it. You know, and um, and rewards work better than punishments. So you know, you could negotiate. If you can uh, watch this show and not miss out on anything, but poop in the potty, and we can put a potty right next to the TV so that you don't go in your pants, what would that be like? And That's how then... I trained my son. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? The potty. We walked around with the potty for well, a few days. Well, that's the way it typically, I mean, this is a regression, you know, I mean, most, most parents have potties that are, that are movable, that are easily accessible. So uh, why not? My concern is, is that by using punishments rather than rewards, we're making the kid feel bad about herself and 
uh, it could be done in a very different way. So, so just to kind of continue on this, just for a little bit. So I do think that obviously positive reinforcement praise gets us further for sure. Um, I would wonder if the, the, the goal of having her leave play dates early is really to spare her embarrassment because maybe mom is afraid she's going to have an accent. And I think that might be okay temporarily, but I think maybe, you know, every five-year-old is different and their ability to kind of communicate is different. But if she's able to talk a little bit more about what is happening when she has an accident, what prevents her from getting to the bathroom? Does she, does she notice the sensation of having, needing to go? Um, she might tell you that she is afraid that she won't finish her show or that, you know, by the time she's finished going to the bathroom, her TV time will be up. So maybe being able to, in advance, reassure her that if you go to the bathroom, you won't lose your time. Um, you know, being able to proactively address her concerns. And then with that, I think whatever plan is created, whether we're going to have breaks every 15 minutes or whatever plan is created to get her to go, to retrain her to go to the bathroom, that being discussed in advance will, I think, also be much easier for her to tolerate um, and and have her weigh in in terms of the planning, have her collaborate with you. I know she's five, but, you know, have her give her thoughts about like what this plan could look like and what she might be able to earn if she could successfully, you know, go to the bathroom three times during a show or whatever, whatever is reasonable. I don't know. Um, but think about how we can motivate and incentivize her to do what it is we need her to do and what's in her best interest. Uh, and, and, and you're right. I think, you know, for example, if she were to do that a number of times and not miss out on the show, maybe she gets an extra award. And may, the, the trick is really figuring out what plan you can come up with that, that you can, as a parent, be consistent with, because that's going to be really um, detrimental to the process if you're not able to be consistent. So pick something you can be consistent with, you know, pick rewards that you can easily also be consistent with. Um, and they don't all have to be monetary rewards. Like they could be um, extra time on a screen or, you know, an extra fun activity at the end of the night. Um, it could be staying up, you know, five minutes later. Just be creative with, about the rewards. And again, engage her in the discussion about what, what the rewards might be. Um, but I think really thinking about what you can create that you can stick to because consistency is going to be key to the success of, of, of a, any plan that you come up with. And just for the record, it, it, I, I said pooping. It may it, it may not be pooping. It may be that she's just got to go pee, you know, but doesn't want to miss it. And you can't hold it in that long. I mean, I, you know. <laughs> and, and that's not uncommon where kids don't want to interrupt their show. They don't want to interrupt their game. They get so engrossed um, that they don't that they don't want to miss out. Some kids, for whatever reason, don't notice the sensation or the urge that they have to go to the bathroom. So that's something else helping them to figure out how to helping them to become more mindful and more aware. Um, and so every kid is different. So we really do have to, to take the time to figure out what is happening with her specifically so that we can kind of tailor um, an intervention um, that we can hope to be successful. And I think, I think we should leave with that because most of the things that we are talking about and most of the things that parents bring to us, they're, they're often highly treatable. And it just is a matter of getting the information, getting the education and, and being pointed in the right direction. And on that note, I can end, I, we can end with this. And that is, is that the myth about, about psychiatric disorders is that, uh, that, that they are not curable, that they're not uh, treatable. 
that you just stuck. And the and the fact of the matter is, is that most medical disorders are not curable. When I was a medical student, um, I was told by one of my uh, attendings that there are only two cures in medicine, surgery and antibiotics. And everything else is just maintenance. And whether it's ulcers or migraines or, or lower back pain or whatever, um, hypertension, uh, we basically have treatments that uh, that are effective in kind of controlling things. In psychiatry, we're batting at about 70%, which is as good as it gets in almost every other medical disorder. And there are only a, a, a small handful of psychiatric disorders that are much more difficult to, um, to treat and to get what we call remission. Uh, and um, so I, I just want everyone to know that um, psychiatry is no different than the rest of, of modern medicine and that we really do have effective ways of taking care of things. So on that note, um, we'd like to, um, we hope that our conversation and our questions have, will help you have yours. And we hope that you'll ask more questions. These were great. Um, and uh, just send them in and we'll try to weave them into our podcasts this year. I'm Jean Bergeson. I'm Khadija Booth Watkins. Thank you for listening. Is this our first episode? Is this our first episode? Welcome back. Okay. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome I don't. I, 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 that's a great song, John Sebastian. See, I knew you would that. like it.